0: Waffles and Mochi is a new culinary kids show on Netflix that follows the adventures of two Muppet-like friends, Waffles and Mochi, who emerge from living amongst freezer food to traveling the world to learn about the bounty of fresh, real ingredients and international culinary cultures. The 10-episode series boasts a roster of famous food folks like Jose Andres, Massimo Batura, and Preeti Mistri, who show Waffles and Mochi everything from the difference between herbs and spices to explaining why a tomato, in fact, is a fruit. I love the show because not only does it involve two of my favorite things on planet Earth, Muppets and Michelle Obama, but because of its bright and lighthearted tone. While it's technically a kid's show, it's filled with curiosity, enthusiasm, joy, and delight, things we definitely could use right now. Today we're chatting with the show's creator, Jeremy Conner, who's also the mad genius behind Drunk History, which I love, and his co-creator and showrunner, Erica Thormelin. Thanks
1: for joining us, guys. Hi, Krista. Thanks for having us.
0: I just love waffles and mochi. It is so tender, and I feel like it's everything we need right now in the world of television, but just in the world in general. I want to know first how you guys came up with the concept for this show, because it's a little bit of a departure.
1: Yeah, well, Jeremy and I have been friends for a long, 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 long time. Back in our 20s, we were part of a group of friends, creatives, and we did this sort of short film, right? And it was our first attempt at this style of show, puppets cooking in a kitchen, going out into the world. And that was the prototype for Waffles and Mochi. At the time it didn't go anywhere uh, (laughs) it lived on YouTube. And I think, you know, Jeremy and I have reflected back at, at that moment in the landscape of kids' media, there was no desire to see kids in a kitchen. I think there was a real fear around it even. And we put it in, you know, the drawer and then went on with our lives. Jeremy went on to co-create Drunk History. I got my master's in education. I moved to New York and we ran into each other at a restaurant in Los Angeles. I was in town visiting. And Jeremy said these fateful words because he had become a dad of a, <laughs> of a young boy who didn't want to eat tomatoes.
2: <laughs> I said, uh, I wish this show was around now. I really need to get my kid to eat a tomato. You know, he's very he's getting very picky. Toddlers are picky. And we started meeting up and kind of said, let's take a crack at this. Let's try and bring this back to life. And, you know, this was really Erica's baby years ago. And it was very exciting for me as going from drunk history to like get into this kind of kids world because there was nobody involved we'd never pitched it before we never talked to anybody it was really exciting we were just writing back and forth creating a fun deck like what's the craziest thing we would want to see in this world what if uh, what if there's a talking mop what if they just go to japan let's just do it let's write it all because there's no pressure right we could just do whatever we wanted and uh i think that was actually ended up being the real success of it and why why people liked it
0: yeah, it is so fantastical, too. It reminds me a little bit of, like, a Pee-wee's Playhouse. You know what I mean? It's talking chairs and all these, like, crazy characters. Um, I feel like people keep on talking about Sesame Street as being a comp for it. But I feel like Pee-wee may be something, too, that I think that idea of just, like, whatever you want it to be, it can be. And I think when you're creating from a place of just creating to create rather than thinking, of like, well, how am I going to sell this show or this film or this doc or whatever it is? You get so many people giving you feedback as to like, well, this won't sell because or the networks are really looking for X, Y, Z. And so it sounds like it came from a really authentic place and it it just refound its space over time.
1: Yeah, that's right. We always talked about it as Pee Wee's Playhouse in the kitchen. And what was cool the second time around, I think Jeremy had fallen in love with what is sort of the new food television show genre of that kind of travelogue, food, Anthony Bourdain, uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Ugly Delicious. When when we first started talking again about re-envisioning the show, Jeremy urged me to go home and watch Ugly Delicious right away, sort of gave me homework to watch Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and take this idea out of the kitchen into the world. So that was sort of this new, more modern version. I think Previously, we had tried to situate it in like a Food Network-style cooking show. And what got us really excited, like Jeremy said, was to bring our puppets to Japan and Italy and Peru and Savannah and all the places we went. That's right.
0: I feel like so much of what we're seeing in the world today is just from a lack of understanding and empathy. And I know for myself, when I started traveling, I didn't get to do that as a young kid. It just wasn't a part of what I had access to. But I feel like I really gained that empathy and understanding so much through traveling and traveling through food. And I think it's a great thing for kids to see from a young age, understanding other culinary cultures and maybe, you know, trying to cook with their families. I mean, obviously from a health perspective too, it's such a huge issue. We're dealing with, you know, childhood obesity and, you know, a real health epidemic. And it starts from a really young age. So I love the idea that it's, you know, catering to children and it makes so much sense that Michelle Obama is involved too. It's because that was her big mission with, you know, with everything she did in the White House and what she continues to do now. So it's really cool. I love this.
2: It's been exciting to see her doing press for this and really, in a lot of ways, correcting what went wrong with some of the stuff she did in the White House. There was a huge backlash, right? People felt we're really angry about it. And I think that's not at all what she (laughs) intended, obviously. And it was nice that going through this process, we realized that this was all about embracing foods and cultures and never food shaming, right? Never telling kids what's good for you, bad for you, what's healthy, what's not healthy, what's has vitamins and what's junk. Like those are words that we never say. And that's been one of the things that's been really important to us, this whole process, right? The second someone says, oh, and then, you know, this thing's really healthy. We'll be like, uh, actually we don't, we don't use that term in our show because just food, this is just all about connecting to food, connecting to cultures, connecting to people seeing how food brings us all together.
0: Right. Yeah. I think there's that thing with kids for whatever reason, if it's labeled as healthy, they don't want it. (laughs) You know, and even me, I'm like, "Hmm, well, do I feel like eating healthy today? And I think maybe that might be why some of the school lunch programs did fail is because it was branded as being good for you and being healthy and it should be fun. Right. And I think that's where, you know, where you guys come in, you know, if you're showing a kid how to roast a tomato and make it really, really tasty, it turns this thing that by the way, like texturally, I know so many kids who hated tomatoes. Your toddler was not, uh, you know, an odd man out there. Give it to them in a way like tomato candy. Perfect idea. Give it to them in the way it's candy Then they really want it. So I want to talk a little bit about the process of developing the show. So I noticed there was a working title out there called Listen to Your Vegetables and Eat Your Parents. Was that that original YouTube series you guys had created?
1: Yes, our... Prototype puppet hosts sort of fumbled their sign off at the end, and and it became a really fun play on words. That when we revisited this new version, we got really hooked on because it felt like a, a really fun North Star in terms of the kind of rebelliousness we wanted to infuse in the show. The show was always meant to surprise and delight and subvert expectations. And Jeremy, we kind of talk about that. Uh, former show title as being like our punk rock call to arms. Like it, it's a, it's a little anti-authority, right? You're, you're subverting the idea that what you're meant to listen to is really your food, right? Because your, your food's going to teach you a lot about yourself. And that's what we hope to do in this version of the show was tell stories through food. That's really
0: clever. Did you guys come to this with the intention of it being something that parents would want to watch too? Because I feel like it has that Pixar effect where it's like, you know, you get these little jokes in Toy Story where it's like, did Buzz just say that? Like, wait a minute. I feel like the show has that same element too. Yeah. That was
2: the dream, right? I'm blown away that we've actually been able to accomplish a hundredth of what Pixar is able to accomplish. But the idea is, yes, we want to show that Everyone sits down and watches, most importantly, a show that we want to watch. That's how we went into this, and that's been our guiding principle this whole time. Would we enjoy this? I'm the father of a four-year-old, and I watch a lot of kids' shows that are not super fun to watch, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But boy, anytime I turn on a Pixar movie, we will all be sitting around enjoying that I'll be weeping at the first 10 minutes of Up or any of the movies. Yep. I'll just, just weep through any Pixar movie from beginning to end, basically. <laughs> um, same.
0: No shame. <laughs> I do the same thing. No worries. We want it to
2: be funny. That's why we also brought in tons of comedians. Like, the Taste Buds are voiced by Kate Berland and John Early. We have all these people like Galifianakis and Maya Rudolph, and all the music is written by Kate McCucci and Ricky Lindholm from Garfunkel & Oates.
0: Mm. When when you came to the network, did you already have the talent attached to it or did you come to them with this concept and this sort of YouTube sizzle in a way, I guess, to sort of show them what you were thinking and then they helped you get everybody on board?
1: We certainly didn't show anyone the YouTube version. (laughs) You that
0: right away. <laughs> I take that down. <laughs> it's hard, right? Because when you don't have the budget to develop something and it's super high concept that hasn't really been out there before. I mean, I guess, like we said, peewee. But when you've got puppets and things like that, you, you don't want to kill the idea by putting out something that's not totally representative of exactly what it is you're going for creatively, I imagine. He
1: certainly brought what we called a, a kind of recipe for the show idea. Jeremy just mentioned it included comedians and celebrities in addition to food, puppets, and kids. So it, it, we sort of brought this recipe to Higher Ground Productions, and then Netflix embraced it, and yeah. I love it. It was that. a little
2: confusing, though, because we brought in, also all the writers are, for the most part, <laughs> from the comedy world. We got, you know, Scirocco was wrote on Russian Doll, and Sean and Lyric, I knew from Drunk History. Like, we were pushing the boundaries, I think, of what, is typical in
0: children's television. Yeah. I think that's so smart that that's what makes it great, right? I think especially in, you know, children's television, culinary television has also fallen into this, for, sort of formulaic, like everybody wants to comp Chef's Table or No Reservations or Parts Unknown. I mean, they're amazing shows with incredible talent that you can never, I don't know, you can never beat Anthony Bourdain. Like you're never going to create that again. I remember seeing the network mandates and it's CNN is always like, we're looking for the next. And it's like, good luck with that. <laughs> like, the man was one of a kind. So I think it's really smart to kind of create your own lane and create your own style that doesn't really exist yet, especially with children. I want to revisit that because well, I think the reason why a lot of, for a lot of people, kids' culinary TV didn't work is because they're knives and you're teaching kids with knives. It's really dangerous, like from a liability perspective. Um, I know like Top Chef, the kids show, it took forever for them to get that green lit just because of kids and fire and flames and knives. <laughs> so this is an excellent workaround. You've got these two little Muppets, you know, they're... <laughs> Someone's hands gets whacked. That's an adult. That's that's your, that's your problem. Tell me about working with the Muppets and being, you know, in these culinary settings. I imagine there are some challenges with that. Or excuse me, tell me about working with the puppets and being to, in yes, these culinary I do have settings. To clarify
2: because of uh, I don't want to be sued. That are not yeah. Muppets. Muppets are created yeah. by Jim Henson. We are puppets, regular old puppets.
0: Um. Well, what is it like working with? puppets and and food and cooking are there challenges there that your puppeteers might have had to create different rigs for or did you guys as creators had to create workarounds for
1: yeah from day one our biggest the thing that kept Jeremy and I up at night was (laughs) how are we gonna feed a puppet Um, (laughs) realistically, right? Because of course, Cookie Monster is our favorite puppet that ingests cookies, but they all fly out of his mouth in a really funny way. It's chaotic and it's funny. But one of the reasons we built the show around puppets eating was they're kind of a proxy, right, for our viewer. And we really wanted our puppets to experience food like a human would. And that meant that it needed to go down realistically. And our puppets, as you can tell, are made of fabric and felt and food and fabric don't mix. So <laughs> tell me about it. Me and my Tide sticker best friends. <laughs> exactly. No, and our our puppet crew can do a sponsorship for Clorox wipes, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, when we when we set out to design Waffles because she was really our main eater as as you know Mochi has an animated mouth and he eats on the show but his practically speaking wasn't a concern, but for Waffles, our puppet fabricator Swazzle they had to go into sort of research and development for a while to figure out how food was gonna go in and and stay in and also not harm our puppeteer, right? Because you have a puppet's hand internally and that food, if it's hot, could sit very closely to their body and their skin. So it was a really big challenge and scared Jeremy
2: and I. (laughs) We came up with the state of the art technology known as a plastic sack.
0: It's got a little bag. Just a little little garbage
2: bag. bag. Um, But it was fun doing because one of the things we had to do was make sure that our puppeteers also were reacting in real ways. So anytime you see the puppet take a bite, five seconds before that, the chef had bent down and given the puppeteer a bite. So they're basically chewing it at the exact same time as the puppet to make sure that those reactions were real because I think it would be really obvious if they were constantly faking it.
0: You guys know that I'm all about balancing my love of food and wine with fitness. And let's be real, home fitness is here to stay. That's why I'm excited to have an Ergata Digitally Connected Rower. It's the perfect choice for anyone looking for an efficient, engaging, full-body workout. But the thing I like most about this rower is the fact that it's visually stunning. Handcrafted in the U.S. from rich cherry wood, Ergata brings fitness into your home without having to drag that sterile gym aesthetic along with it. Their water rowing machine stores upright in a snap and transforms into a connected fitness device with personalized workouts and competitive races against other community members. So if you're looking to take control of your fitness from home, go see what I'm talking about at Ergata.com. That's e-r-g-a-t-t-a.com. Well, what a great job as a puppeteer. You're like, I want to get on waffles and mochi. They're feeding me all day. This is excellent. That's so interesting. You do feel like they're real reactions, especially with mochi. So it's a, is it a glove? And then there's a plastic bag or like, explain a little bit more. I'm curious, the anatomy of an eating puppet.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like a, like a doggy poop bag. Like you just sort of, <laughs> it's just sort of in there like a gullet. And then we just would switch it out. And our puppeteer would sometimes wear gloves, depending on what food was going down waffles mouth that day. What was the most difficult food for waffles to consume? Oh, gosh. I mean, we look back, Jeremy and I just giggle. Somehow, we didn't plan for this, but all of the foods that we sort of experience across 10 episodes were very soupy, very stewy, very gooey, very gloopy. <laughs> I mean, it's like a Dr. <laughs> Seuss sort of I was just going to say, like puddings, despacho, potato stew, omelet with a really gorgeous sauce on top. Like everything is so saucy and so messy. That purple um, mazamarada, the the purple corn pudding, like the things that could stain and drip. And it, it was not an easy shoot by any estimation.
2: We had to travel with many puppets. There's the only way to do it to ensure that we were... Going to be able to continue shooting because they basically were like, You're going to ruin a puppet. The puppet, you know, the puppet fabricator's like, There's no way you're going to do this without ruining puppets. Yeah. So like, okay, let's fabricate four of them and carry them with us.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh, I would have loved to have been the TSA agent that was going through those Pelican cases. It's like, what the hell are these people doing? (laughs) These guys are real freaks. (laughs) That's so wild. So so you guys were actually traveling for the production of this show. Like, when were you guys actually shooting? Is it pre-pandemic or like, how did that impact what you were doing?
1: We went on the road, I think in October of 2019. And we had a few pickup days with some chefs in January of 2020, right before lockdown. Wow.
0: Right by the skin of your teeth. Right, right, yeah.
2: We were right under the wire. We, it was incredible how lucky we are. <laughs> I,
0: Wild. Uh, yeah. Is there anything that's happened since then that you wish you could have put into season one? Like, you're like, oh, man, I wish we would have thought about X, Y, and Z. Oh,
2: <laughs> I cannot begin yeah. to describe how much. Every episode we had, you know, was 40 minutes and we had to cut it down to 24. I mean one of the reasons why we started the pickle episode in general was because we loved this idea that pickling changed the face of the earth. Like it's what made the explorers be able to travel and ultimately conquer. And so that just kept leading us down roads that we bailed on because it really was like And then colonialism. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, (laughs) this is getting, not that we can never tell that story. I think that's one of the cool things, you know, we do tell those stories, you know, in the rice episode, Michael Twitty, food historian, talks about how his ancestors were kidnapped and from Sierra Leone and enslaved because they could grow rice and they were brought to America for that reason. And like, mm. we didn't shy away from that. We let him, we wanted him to tell that story.
0: That's, I think, a, a really good point that, again, food has the power to do that. Like, whereas, you know, in any other circumstance on the History Channel or something, you're not going to deliver that to a child. Kids are never too young to learn. And again, to the point of like cultural understanding, I think it's a really great thing to get going on that one earlier, else we're going to end up in a perpetual cycle of what we're in right now, which is not bueno. I can't wait to see that episode. So, spill the tea. What was it like working with Michelle Obama? She is just the
1: coolest. I'm so jealous. She is the coolest. I mean, Jeremy and I, when we first met Mrs. Obama, as we call her, we were in development on the show and we were asked to come to Washington, D.C. and and meet with her and and her team to present some of our ideas and have a roundtable talk about food and eating and what it meant to her specifically and I remember Jeremy and I got so nervous because we were told that we would have 15 minutes with her only because her day is scheduled in 15-minute increments. And we were sweating profusely. I made Jeremy come to Rite Aid with me so I could get some clinical strength deodorant. Because <laughs> i was so scared. Uh, wore a silk blouse, which I'll never do again. Um,
0: oh, no. Killer combo. Especially in D.C. where it's humid. Oh,
1: my. Oh, yeah, What yeah. was I thinking. Playing. But we... But we ended up being so warmly greeted by her and her team. I mean, you sit down with her. She is such a present person as well as has such an incredible presence. But ultimately, I think when Jeremy and I left that conference room, we had been there 90 minutes because we were just all yucking it up. Like it was the funnest, funniest time. And she was telling us all about, you know, her taste buds and her husband's taste buds and how they're they sit at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of what they like and what that means for for their dinner times and that was one of the coolest things was uh mochi's taste buds which are these animated friends that live in his mouth that we occasionally visit in the show that's where that came from and that i mean that just carried on to to the the days that we were shooting with her on set which as director i know jeremy has um <laughs> a, a great take on
2: no she was
1: She's the greatest. She's the greatest person in the world. I just want to be around her
2: all the time. Me too. And she, you know, and and like we would hand her these scripts and be like, okay, so you're gonna kind of teach her this lesson about moderation or patience, and can you just tell the puppets, uh, you know, say these lines? And she would say the lines, and it would be good. It's fine. We wrote them. They're okay. Um, but then we'd be like. But uh, what would you say, Mrs. Obama? Like, how do you talk to children about patients? And then she just would start talking and would give this 10-minute long, incredible monologue. And we're, like, tearing up behind the monitors because she's just, she knows how to talk to kids. She knows how to comfort you. And she knows how to guide. And you just feel so taken care of around her. Like, you're just like, tell me what to do, please.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So. I'm so glad that you guys allowed her that space. She does have just an incredible voice, and some people need to be guided and need a script, but I feel like, yeah, she's just someone that you just need to hear what she's got to say, and you're hanging on to every word. So that's a really smart approach, I think, as a director. So, Jeremy, you directed the show as well as created it. Yeah. For you, it is you know, Drunk History and a, child, a children's show... With traveling puppets seem like two totally disparate things, and it's like, well, this guy's all over the place. But I do think there's like a connection there. It's like breaking down these big concepts for normal people, right? I thought you were going to say, and helping us,
2: toddlers and drunk people are basically the same. But
0: (laughs) also very true. Also Um, very very true.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's uh, breaking down (laughs) concepts to making making them accessible is something I spent the last ten years of my life. Focusing on uh, with Drunk History, obviously it's very different, but in a lot of ways, it was very similar. Our audience in Drunk History were not academics. <laughs> like our audience are kind of kids and and young people. And so I had already had a mindset and worked a lot on just like, let's just make this fun and easy. And also what it gave me is the confidence that you, we don't need to say everything. We are just the springboard. We are just getting you interested and getting you excited. And there's a whole world out there if you want to keep researching, right? Like, I found that was one of the most effective things with Drunk History is we kept hearing back everybody saying oh my gosh, after this, I went down a rabbit hole. I became obsessed with this thing. Because of this episode, I learned this and did my thesis on this. And I was like, oh, wow, it's okay. We're just giving you, just making you as excited as possible.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, have your children watched the show? And if so, how are they receiving it? What are they thinking about all this?
2: When I first showed it to my son, Before we were done, he was a little bit of a focus group while I was editing at home because that was at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were editing remotely with him in the room with me basically the whole time. Um, Wow. And I would show him things, and at that time, and maybe it was just because it wasn't polished and color graded, (laughs) um, he was like, "Um, there's not enough bad guys (laughs) And he really was focused on good guys, bad guys. That was what his life was at three.
0: Yeah. The life of a little boy, I tell you. Oh, my gosh. But now... The bad guys are those freezer foods, I'll tell you what.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Which is fine, by the way. Mm -hmm. You
0: know. Yeah. Everything in moderation. But now, how does he feel about it? Now that he can see it, the colors are popping. (laughs) Mochi has his animated face going on. The waffles are popping how's he feeling about it?
2: He, he's responded really well and it's inspired us to get in the kitchen more and it got him excited about trying stuff. And that's, that's the, all that we care about. It's just like getting kids to just get a little bit more excited about food, a little more connected.
0: I think it's a very effective way to do that. Are there um, online components in learning that you guys have planned to integrate for, you know, for kids to, you know, get online and cook along with the recipe or maybe it might already exist. If you
1: go to wafflesandmochi.org, there is a whole grab bag of recipes from the show and activities that you can do at home with your kids or in your classroom. If you're a teacher or an educator, there's a a badge sheet that you can print out and follow along and earn your badges, just like waffles and mochi. If you go to wafflesandmochi.org.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, guys, I, I guess that's a great segue into figuring out how folks can follow along. Obviously, you can watch the show on Netflix, number one. You guys got to do that. It's really great. Where else can they follow along with everything that you have going on? Well,
2: if you go to wafflesamochi.org, one of the incredible things about it is because we're working with the Obamas, you know, and Mrs. Obama started this Partnership for a Healthier America organization to help get people who don't have access to food, food. And so there's a whole there she's trying to feed a million people through this org. it's called pass the love it's in conjunction with a lot of different people specifically walmart and they're like putting together these meal kits and <laughs> going to give out you know a million meal kits
0: incredible really cool so it's a show with a purpose one thing i want to circle back on which i am embarrassed at my Very un Oprah esque interviewing skills because this is very important. The people must know. Erica, you'd mentioned that Michelle had talked about how her and her husband have very disparate eating habits. Who, who's got what? This is Barack spicy. She likes a little more mellow. Like what's the, what's the palate differentiation between the two of them that you guys talked
1: about? I think Mrs. Obama likes spicy, but what she shared with us was that her taste buds grew up in the Midwest. So she's a fan of mac and cheese. I think that's on the record mm. everywhere, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and her husband, President Barack Obama, he grew up in Hawaii and Indonesia, which meant that his taste buds don't really have a craving for that dairy life, that sort of cheesy, gooey stuff. So I guess in their household, he's not a fan. I also, I think we just heard that he's not a fan of chocolate as well, which just is mind blowing. She said that in a recent interview and I'm, I'm floored. I don't know, but yeah. So I think, I think they, they share some similar cravings, but also have, have different taste buds as well.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. The dairy, we, we, eat a lot of dairy in this country. And it is pretty unique. I feel like maybe a a little bit in the Nordic countries and, you know, Ireland as well, you know, France, I guess, but most of the world, they don't eat a lot of dairy. It's kind of, we're unique to that. And certainly in our profuse use of it, like mac and cheese, where they're like, not just one, but five cheeses. And I need all five of those cheeses. Yeah. (laughs) That chocolate thing is interesting though. I actually, this is my deep, dark foodie secret is that I don't like dark chocolate. I love milk chocolate, but no, yep, yep. <laughs> the secret's out. I'm with you on that, by the way.
1: I oh my like you so- too. I know. Ooh, I'm not alone. Oh, no. We can start, we can start a support group. Yeah,
0: seriously, like slowly get ourselves up. Okay, we're at 60%, 61%. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I think I grew up on C's candy. It was like um, my parents were teachers. And so, yeah, they would every year around the holidays, just get an influx of C's. And they also got a discount at the factory store and their milk chocolate is so good. Those scotch mallows. Nuts and chews. Nuts and chews. Yes. What's your favorite in the box of nuts and chews? I'm a nut gal. Oh yeah. Oh, so you can come over anytime. Those are the last in the box for me. Oh, great. We can divide and conquer that's right. <laughs> Just stay away from my scotch mallow. That's all that I have to say. <laughs>
2: are there turtles oh in gosh. this party? The, the the Seas turtles?
0: The turtles are delicious. They're, I don't think there's a turtle in a nuts I'm and not. shoes box no. as far as I know. Yeah, that you're, that you're that is a separate box. And and in fact, that box turns up and it gets neglected. So you're welcome at the party I too. You're going to have your own Those box. turtles are my
2: favorite. That's my favorite Seas <laughs> item.
0: Mm. Oh my God, it's so, so good. Out. Seriously. So they started making scotch mallow eggs. I don't know. People have a love hate with the scotch mallow. You don't like it. Oh, she's not down. He's not down. This is great. <laughs> you guys are coming over for Easter. All more for you. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, it's been so wonderful chatting with both of you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Everybody tune in on Netflix. Be sure to follow along with us on Instagram, Twitter. I'm on Patreon now, apparently. You can get paid for doing work. Who knew? Look at that. So find me uh, there at Krista Simmons on all of the above. We will see you next week for another episode. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Krista.